Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be here. I heard this was a godly church, so I'm just going to preach directly from the Greek, if that's all right with, uh, with all of you, since I'm sure that you all know that. Uh, but no, it's a joy uh, for me to be here. Uh, I think about so many spiritual blessings that I've received in my life from God really have come through in one way or another this church. Uh, I was a seminary student uh, at the Cornerstone when Phil Howard was teaching there, and of course, uh, some of my most kind of privileged and, you know, treasured years being at Community Bible Church, where Pastor Steve was our pastor. He was sent out from here, and so so much of my Christian life has been shaped really indirectly uh, through the ministries of this church, and so it's just wonderful for me to be here uh, and to be able to speak with you all today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark chapter 8. You know, it's kind of that time of New Year's resolutions uh, this year, Uh, and so as you think about the year ahead, you might kind of make these statements about things that you want to do, kind of dreams that you have, things you want to accomplish, and many times when we make statements like that, we don't really think about the implications of what those what it's involved in statements like that. Uh, For example, you know, one year I said, you know, I'm going to remodel our guest bathroom. I said that to my wife, and, you know, I had no idea of the implications of a statement like that. I'm not a particularly handy person myself, but I thought, you know, this shouldn't be too hard. Uh, But there's many things that I didn't know would happen as I went to remodel our guest bathroom. I didn't know that when I ripped up the linoleum that there'd be sort of this particle board with all these staples underneath it, and I'd have to get rid of that somehow before I would lay tile down. I didn't know that if I took out our old sink, that I just assumed that when I put a new sink in, that everything would fit just the way that the old one did, but that's not the case. Uh, I didn't know that when we finally laid down that tile, that it wouldn't be the same height as the previous floor had been, and that could create some problems with different things. And so even though I said this statement, I'm going to remodel our guest bathroom, I really had no idea of the implications of that statement. Or maybe think of this. Imagine, you know, your wife comes up to you if you're married and says, we're going to have a baby. You have no idea of the implications of that statement, especially if it's your first child. Well, in the same way, I think that's true when we profess that Jesus is the Christ. I think we have ideas of what that means, but we really don't have any idea of all of the life-altering implications of the statement, Jesus is the Christ. For many of us, I think we, it, it means that we have sin and that we need a Savior. For others, it might just be, I have a big problem in my life, and I know that I can't solve it, and so I think Jesus can. For others, it might be just my life has just hit absolute rock bottom, and Jesus is my last hope. But again, we often don't realize the life-altering implications of the statement, Jesus is the Christ. But thankfully, we have a powerful Savior who can show us not only who he is, but all of the implications of who he is as well for our lives. So let me pray, and then we'll look at this in Mark chapter 8. Father, it's a joy to be here with your people. It's a joy to have you as a father. It's a joy to have your word to shepherd us and guide us through this life. It's a joy to have your son who laid down his life for ours, and who is the Christ. And it's a joy to just have it unveiled to us week after week, to be reminded of who he is, to see him a little bit more clearly every time we gather together. And we're so thankful that as we see him, 
he continues his work in our lives. And so, Lord, that's our prayer this morning, that we would see Christ as he truly is, and that it would change us, that we wouldn't leave here the same people that we did coming in, that because we've seen Christ, we would be different. We'd be more like him. We'd be willing to lay down our life for the sake of others and for his gospel. And Lord, we know we're not going to do that unless we see Christ for who he truly is. And so we ask that you would speak to us through your word, that we would hear your voice, that you would take the scales off of our eyes once again so that we would see Christ clearly. Would you please do that work this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 8. Really, Mark chapter 8 is the turning point of Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark's gospel is concerned with two questions. The first question is, who is Jesus? And then the second question is, what does that mean for someone who would follow Jesus? So really, the first eight chapters of this gospel have all been leading to this conversation. And Jesus has done amazing things. Jesus has done things that no other man has ever done. He's healed sickness and disease. He's fed thousands with just a few loaves of bread. He has calmed the storm. He's even raised the dead. And the common refrain throughout the first seven chapters of Mark's gospel is, who is this man that he can do these things? In Mark chapter 8, we get the answer to that question, who is Jesus? But more than that, we also start to get the second question answered. What does that mean if we're to follow Jesus? And so first, as we look at these verses, beware of not seeing Jesus as he truly is. Verses 11 to 13, beware of not seeing Jesus as he truly is. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So the Pharisees approach Jesus, and what do they want in verse 11? They want a sign from heaven, right? They want some kind of proof from God of who Jesus is. At least that's what they say. Now, if I were Jesus, I might kind of be a little sarcastic in my reply, saying like, oh, you want a sign from heaven. What if I could cast out a demon? It's like, wait, I've already done that one. Uh, How about this? How about I heal sickness and disease? Right? I've done that too. Actually, I did that when a whole town came to me, and I healed every kind of sickness and disease that anyone had when they came to me. What if I could feed thousands of people and I just used like a few fish and some bread? I've actually done that twice. But you probably want like really good proof. You want something like if I could raise someone from the dead. Wait, I've done that too. But you said a sign from heaven. So what you have in mind is probably like, you know, the clouds parting and, you know, like the spirit of God descending like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. It's like, wait, that's happened too. So what is it that the Pharisees really want in verse 11? Well, what does it say at the end? They asked a sign from heaven to test him. They don't actually want to believe in Christ. 
You know, they're not genuinely seeking like, oh, if, Jesus, if you could just give us some evidence, we really want to believe, but we really need to see something amazing. No, that's not what they want. They want to discredit Jesus. They want to disprove that he is who he says he is. And so how does Jesus respond to people who refuse to believe all of the evidence that they already see? Verse 12, he sighs deeply in his spirit. It grieves him when people refuse to see him as he truly is. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus isn't going to give a sign to a people who've already refused the signs they've been given. And then in verse 13, he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. You know, people are like this today, just like the Pharisees. They refuse to believe, even though there's so much incredible evidence that Jesus is the Christ. They refuse to believe in God, even though everything around them and in them testifies to the fact that God is real. God is powerful. God's a creator. The world around you testifies not only to the sin of others, but even to your own personal sin. And we all know that that sin deserves judgment. We can't be like the Pharisees who just refuse to believe these things even though there's evidence all around them. I hope that's not you today. If it is, you need to stop denying all of the evidence that you have that God is real, that you have sin, and that you desperately need a Savior. Stop denying it. Stop suppressing it. And repent. And acknowledge it. Acknowledge everything that you already know so that Christ could be your Savior. Because if you're refusing to see Jesus as he truly is, you don't know when your last opportunity might be. You know, verse 13, it kind of sounds just like an incidental sort of traveling remark that Jesus went from point A to point B, but it's more than that. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's deliberately disengaging from the Pharisees because they refuse to believe everything around them. Don't let that be you. Come to Christ. You know you need a Savior. You know that God is just. You know in your heart of hearts that you deserve judgment. And Christ offers forgiveness and escape from that judgment. Stop refusing to see him as he truly is. But there's another group of people that Christ addresses in verses 14 and 15 that are also not seeing Jesus as he truly is. He says this in verse 14, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So here Jesus is talking about something a little bit different. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And we understand that even just from the verses before. What is that leaven? It's the leaven of unbelief, right? The leaven of unbelief that just refuses to see Jesus as he truly is. But Jesus says there's actually another kind of unbelief that you need to watch out for, and it's the unbelief of Herod. Now, what's up with that? Herod. The last time we see Herod is in chapter 6 of Mark's gospel. And Herod was someone who actually enjoyed listening to the preaching of John the Baptist. Look back at Mark 6, verse 20. This is Herod's opinion of John the Baptist. It says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, 
and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So this is Herod's opinion of John the Baptist. When John would preach, Herod wouldn't understand it all, but he liked listening to the preaching of John the Baptist. He actually kept John the Baptist safe because he knew that John the Baptist was a righteous and holy man. So what happens next? Well, Herod marries his brother's wife. John the Baptist calls him out on that. Herod's wife doesn't like that. And she arranges a scenario where she asks her husband to cut off of the head of the person he knows is a righteous and holy man who he enjoys listening to, even though he doesn't understand everything that he says. So what does Herod do? I can keep listening to this person, or I can appease the desire of my wife. What do I do? And what does Herod do? Look at verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. So what happened? Why is it that this king liked hearing John the Baptist, knew he was a righteous and holy man, and yet he was willing to kill him? Well, he had unbelief that was born out of competing interests, right? He wanted to hear those messages that John the Baptist had, but he wasn't willing to sacrifice his relationship with his wife or with even the guests at his dinner, and so he cut the head off of John the Baptist. This is unbelief born out of competing interests, right? What are those competing interests that are keeping you from trusting fully in Christ? I mean, maybe it's comfort, maybe money, power, where you say things like, well, I would follow Christ, but I don't want to give up this relationship. That was Herod. Or, well, I would follow Christ, but, you know, I don't really want to give up this lifestyle that I enjoy. That's the rich young ruler who you'll meet later in Mark's gospel. Or, well, I would follow Christ, but I don't really want things in my life to change. And I know that if I follow Christ, it means saying no to things that I enjoy. Jesus says, beware of these kinds of thoughts. Beware of thoughts that say that something else is going to be more satisfying and better for you than Jesus himself. And how much of these thoughts should you beware of? What does he say? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod, right? How much leaven do you need to affect a loaf of bread? right? A ton, right? I mean, so Jesus, all Jesus is saying is just beware of a lot of unbelief in your life. No, of course not, right? You need this much leaven to leaven an entire lump. What's he saying? You need this much unbelief in your life until it permeates everything about you. Jesus is saying, watch out. If there's anything that gives you pause about following Christ, deal with it right away, because it will permeate everything in your life. And so beware of just blatant unbelief where you refuse to believe who Jesus is. Beware of unbelief that is born out of a competing interest. But there's yet another group of people who are not really seeing Jesus as he truly is, and that's the disciples. Look at verse 16, back in Mark 8. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. 
So how did the disciples respond to this dire warning, right? Jesus tells them, watch out, be careful, beware. This is incredibly dangerous. They start arguing each other about the fact that they have no bread. You know, they think Jesus is upset that they didn't bring enough bread for their voyage. What does Jesus say in verse 17? And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? I mean, these are shocking words to Jesus' disciples, right? They've lived with him. They've been following him for years. And he says, do you guys, even you, do you have hardened hearts? Do you see but don't see? Do you hear but don't hear? Those are striking words because those are words from Isaiah describing unbelievers. Jesus is saying, are you just like them? That you're seeing all these things, hearing all these things, and it just has no effect on your life. And so Jesus tries to kind of jog their memory by asking them these questions. Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves, right? I had five loaves of bread, and there were 5,000 people. How many big baskets full of leftovers did you take up when, you did, when we fed the 5,000? They know the answer, 12. And you remember I did that again with 4,000 people? How many big baskets full did you pick up? Seven. And he's like, don't you understand? I mean, these are the guys that are acing the Sunday school class, right? How many baskets full did you pick up? Twelve. How many baskets? Seven. But they are failing the class of life, right? None of these things are impacting them in the way that they should. And so how about us? I mean, how many of us could ace the test about Jesus and yet actually fail in the class of living for Christ? You know, the things that you know about Jesus should affect your life. I mean, every week you hear that Jesus reigns over all. And yet how many of us flip out over the state of our world with frustration and anxiety and anger? You know, every week we hear that Jesus is worth living for. And yet some Sundays we're just more excited to get home and watch the football game than we are to live for Christ. Every week we hear that Jesus loves and forgives and is patient with you. And then we go home and we hold grudges against our loved ones. Jesus says, beware of these things. Why? Because it means you don't really see him as he truly is. And so do you see Jesus as he truly is? Do the things you know about Jesus impact your life? If you know that he is sovereign, are you joyful and trusting him, even no matter the world might go in a million different directions? Or are you anxious and fearful and frustrated day after day? If you know that Jesus died for your sins to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, are you thankfully pursuing living in that freedom 
and saying no to sin and saying yes to Christ? Or are you still indulging in the very sins that Jesus died for? Are you seeing Jesus as he truly is? Now, the Pharisees, they refuse to see Jesus as he truly is. The disciples live with Jesus for three years, and yet they don't see Jesus as he truly is. So really, what hope is there for them or for us 2,000 years later that we'd actually be able to see Jesus as he truly is so that we might change? Well, praise the Lord, Jesus knows how to open the eyes of the blind. And that's exactly what he does next. Look at verse 22. Trust alone for Trust Jesus alone for true spiritual sight. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him to his home, saying, don't even enter the village. Now, this has to be kind of the most unique, strange healing that Jesus ever does in his ministry, right? I mean, you imagine the poor guy who's blind, right? His friends tell him, like, hey, come on over. We're going to go find Jesus, and he's going to heal you. And then the first thing that this poor blind man hears is someone spitting, and then he feels that spit on his eyes, and at that point, he's thinking, like, yeah, right, guys, very funny. You're going to take me to Jesus, and he's going to heal me. It's like, no, but it actually is Jesus, and he lays his hands on his eyes, and he opens his eyes, and he sees, sort of, right? He says he sees, but he sees men as trees walking. You know, it's like he's almost wanting to tell Jesus, like, you know, I, I don't want to appear ungrateful, but I'm a little low-key disappointed that this healing wasn't quite everything that I hoped for. And Jesus here, he sort of looks like a bad magician, where he sort of said, like, is this your card? And it's like, no, that's not it. It's like, how about this one? It's like, yeah, but, you know, you didn't get it on the first try, so it's not quite as, ex you know, entertaining as it could have been. So you have to ask yourself the question, why does Jesus heal this way? You know, he could have obviously healed him all at once, right? It wasn't like he was low on the Holy Spirit that day or that he was tired from ministry the night before, that the first healing didn't quite take. No, he intentionally healed him in two steps. So what's going on? Jesus is giving a picture of the disciples in the healing of this blind man. His disciples are men that think they see Jesus as he truly is, and yet it will be shown that they really have no idea what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. It's almost like Jesus is healing this guy in this way, like almost like right in front of the disciples, saying like, this is you. This is you, and you need to see me as I truly am. You're just as blind as this man was. He's been dealing with blind men this whole time. And so he wants to show you that he can give you clear vision of who he is. He alone can do that. You need Jesus to open your eyes. And when he does open your eyes and you see him as he truly is, it changes everything. Because when you see him love, you want to love like him. When you see him serve, you want to serve like him. When you see him even willing to suffer for others, it makes you willing to suffer 
for others like him. Christ alone gives this kind of spiritual sight. And so are there areas of your life where you need to see Jesus more clearly? He can clear your vision so that you're not always anxious and that you see him as worthy of your trust and you're not afraid. He can clear your vision so that you don't fall to the same sins over and over and over again. He'll show you that he's more satisfying than any sin could ever be. He can clear your vision so that you could even love those who are difficult to love because you've seen him love you and others like you. Your greatest need today is a clear vision of Christ. And praise the Lord, he can give you that clear vision. And that's exactly what he does with his disciples next. So let's look at verses 27 to 30. See the life-altering implications of who Jesus truly is. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that, who do people say that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist, others Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Jesus wants to begin to answer that second question of Mark's gospel. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it really mean that Jesus is the Christ? So he starts a conversation. He does it in a very non-threatening way, right? Who do people say that I am? If you ever want people to talk, just ask them what other people think, right? And it's like, oh yeah, so they'll tell you. Well, some say, you know, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. So people think that, you know, you're kind of an important person. But Christ is really setting them up for the more important question, okay, so who do you say that I am? And this is the question that they must confront in their own heart, and this is the most important question that you're going to face in your life. Who do you say Jesus is? And he's helping you to think through this question. You've seen me feed the 5,000 twice. You've seen me raise the dead. You've seen me heal entire villages of every sickness and disease. You've seen me calm the storm. You've seen me walk on water. Who am I? And Peter steps to the plate, gives the perfect Sunday school answer. You are the Christ. And Peter's right. But as we're going to see, Peter sees him as Christ, but he sees him a little bit like a tree Walking, and not what it really means for Jesus to be the Christ. Because what do you think Peter has in mind when he calls Jesus the Christ? You're the conqueror, right? You're the one who's going to come and smash Rome. You're the one who's going to release us from all of our captives. You're going to set up your kingdom, and we're going to get to reign with you. That's what Peter's thinking when he says, you are the Christ. And Peter's right, but it's not going to happen exactly the way that he thinks. And I think that's why Jesus tells him in verse 30, yeah, don't tell anyone about this, because you have no idea really what you're talking about. You're right that I'm the Christ, but you have no idea of the implications. And so Christ begins to unfold what it means for him to be the Christ. Look at verse 31. 
says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. You're right, Peter. I am the Christ. And here is what must happen to the Christ. He must, a divine necessity, this must happen. If I am who you say I am, and I am, this is what's going to happen. I am going to suffer many things. I am going to be rejected by the leaders, the religious leaders, and I am going to be killed before I rise again. And it says he spoke these things to them plainly. He wasn't beating around the bush. He wasn't sort of saying it in an obscure way. He was plainly saying, if I am the Christ, this is what it means. He wants them to know this is the heart of who the Christ truly is. He is the suffering servant who will pay for the sins of his people. And that's what makes him so glorious. He is God. He is one that can heal every sickness, every disease, calm the storm, feed thousands, raise the dead, and yet he's the same one who is willing to suffer and be killed for the sake of his people before he rises again. This is the heart of who Jesus is. This is what it means to know him as the Christ. He is the God who sacrificially serves his people. And everything you love about Christ is because he's the God who sacrificially serves his people. He is the Christ in this way. Does he forgive your sins? Yes. Why? Because he's the God who sacrificially serves his people. Does he empower you every day to live for him? Yes. Why? Because he's a God who loves to sacrificially serve his people. Will he walk with you through the hardest moments of your life? Yes. Why? Because he's the God who sacrificially serves his people. This is what it means for him to be the Christ. This is what we're going to be singing in Revelation 5 for all eternity. Right? Worthy are you. Why? Because you were slain. This is what it means to see Jesus clearly. And this changes everything. Now, how does Peter respond to this incredible truth in verse 32? He said these things plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, you got to hand it to Peter, right? I mean, he's polite about it, right? You know, he brings Jesus aside. You know, Jesus, I don't want to, you know, embarrass you in front of the other guys. Uh, so come over here. You know, all this stuff about the Messiah and suffering and rejection and death, it's like, you got to stop talking about that, right? I mean, that, that can't happen to you. You know, I don't know what Old Testament you've been reading, but the Old Testament we've been reading is saying, hey, the Messiah is the one who's going to finally set everything right. He's going to release the captives. He's going to rule forever, and we're going to get to rule with him. So all this stuff about suffering and rejection, death, like, stop it. Just stop talking about it. How does Jesus then respond to Peter? But turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I mean, Peter went from the head of the class to the principal's office in a matter of moments, right? The right answer, you are the Christ, but you have no idea what you're talking about. Jesus calls Peter Satan to suggest that there's another way for Jesus to be the Christ that doesn't involve suffering and death is satanic. And when you think about it, that's exactly what Satan tempted Jesus with before, right? Satan comes to Jesus and says, hey, everything that you want, Jesus, you know, the glory of all of the nations, everyone giving you the honor that you deserve, I can give that to you, and I can give it to you without the cross. No suffering, no rejection, no death. All you have to do is bow down to me, and I'll give you everything that you came for. And that's essentially what Peter's proposing right here. You be the Christ without the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Whose Christ does Peter want? His own version of Christ? Or does he want God's version of Christ? And we have to ask ourselves that same question. Whose version of Christ do we want? Do we want our version of Christ? Or do we want God's version of Christ? You know, is Christ just a means to our end? That's really what he was to the disciples at this point. We want power. We want glory. We want to reign with you. And you're a means to our end. You know, some of us, that might be true of us. Like, we want Christ for our own reasons, right? We want success. We want money. We want whatever. And we think Jesus is going to help us get to those points. If that's you, then you're seeking after your interests, not God's. And so we need to see our lives in light of who Jesus truly is, not who we want him to be for us. And that's exactly where Jesus goes next. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You know, so Peter wanted to, again, privately rebuke Jesus. Jesus says, nuh-uh. We need to say this out in the open. Let's gather everybody around. Everyone needs to know what it means to truly follow me. And then Jesus says this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you accept that I'm the Christ, if you confess that I'm the Christ, this is what it means. You must make a decisive decision to give up your life. You need to deny yourself. When Jesus says you need to deny yourself, he's not saying, you know, you need to have some self-control, right? Say no to dessert so that you can lose a few pounds this next year. Or no, deny yourself a little extra TV so you can read your Bible more. No, he's saying you need to give up a life centered on yourself. You need to refuse to be guided by your own interests. You need to surrender the control of your destiny to me. 
You know, before we come to Christ, we just think about our own life, right? Everything we think about is my life, my goals, my accomplishments. What do I want to do? What do I want to become? And sometimes when we come to Christ, we still think in those terms, right? Like, how can Christ help me accomplish my goals? How can he help me with these accomplishments that I want? How can he help me become who I want to be? But when we really, truly come to Christ, it's not about our life anymore, right? I mean, think about a car. Sometimes maybe your first car, you love that car. And you're happy if Jesus would come along and he'd give you new tires and he'd give you, you know, a new stereo or whatever else. But no, it's so much more than that, right? This is more than Jesus take the wheel. This is like, Jesus, the whole car is yours. It's not my car anymore. It's yours. Do whatever you want with it. With my life, do whatever you want, When we truly follow after Christ, we don't think my life, my goals. We think his life, his goals. How can my life play a part in what he's doing in the world? Deny yourself. That's what it means. Even more than that, though, he says, take up your cross. Likewise here, he means way more than just you've got a difficult boss at work. You've got a hard situation. It's your cross to bear. No, 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 no. This is accept a death sentence on your life. And this would be a shocking statement to the disciples. I mean, because when we think of Christ, we associate him with the cross, right? Jesus, the first thing you think about, he died on the cross for my sins. They don't have that association. They think, again, what, what do they think following Christ means? We're going to come right along with you until you conquer all of our enemies, and then we're going to reign with you, right? What are the conversations that are happening among the disciples at this time? Which one of us is the greatest, and which one of us can sit at your right hand when you finally set all things right? Those are the conversations that the disciples are having, and Jesus says, no, following me means you take up your cross. You welcome shame and suffering and even death. I mean, it'd be similar in English. Like, you know, someone says, hey, follow me. And by that, I mean, strap yourself to the electric chair. It's a shocking statement. So deny yourself, take up your cross, and then what? And follow me. Follow him in what? In what he just said was going to happen. Shame, suffering, and death. So not only do you completely renounce your life, you continually follow Christ even if it means shame, suffering, and death. And for the disciples, that's exactly what it's going to mean. A life of sacrificial service for the sake of others is what Christ lived for you. And it's the life that he calls you to live for others. But you know the crazy thing is that when you actually live that way, you find life at its fullest and best. When you give up your life for Christ, you think this is going to be horrible for me, but what you actually find is that it, you find true life. I mean, look, at, look what he says, verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it, right? What's he saying? You think that if I live for myself, that that's going to be the best way for me to live my life. If I look out for me, if I get everything that I want, that that's going to be real, fulfilled life. And Jesus says, no, it's not, first of all, it's not going to work. You'll find your life just full of frustration and anxiety because you're not going to get everything that you want. And even if you do, it's not going to be fulfilling. 
And worse than that, he says, if you do that, you will lose your life. You'll find yourself separated from God for eternity. That's what a life guided by your own interests leads to. But look what the else he says. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If you live for Christ and his gospel, you will save your life. And you will actually enjoy your life. And you'll find the purpose for which you were created to do. Now, it's interesting that Jesus says that you live for his sake, but then he adds that you also live for the sake of the gospel. So not only does following Christ mean you're committed to the person of Jesus, following Christ means that you're also committed to the mission of Jesus, his gospel. That's what you're all about, right? You're not seeking my life, my goals, my interests anymore. No, you're seeking Christ's interests, the interests of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, that means, again, that Christ can't just be a part of your life. You know, your life is not a buffet where you get to throw a little scoop of Christ and a little scoop of football and a little scoop of this and whatever else you want. No, everything is Christ. That's all that I seek. But it means you wake up every morning with a singular purpose. How can I live today for Christ and his mission in the world? You know, and this radically changes your perspective on everything. I mean, think about your marriage. Your marriage, then, is not primarily about your joy and your satisfaction. Your marriage is actually an opportunity to love someone and see Christ's purposes accomplished in their life, even if they don't treat you well. Why would I do that? Because that's living for Christ and his mission. That's the very same way that he loved me. And so I want to live that way for others. What about parenting? Well, your task every day is not just getting the kids through school or helping them to be successful or helping them to be maybe less irritating. No, your job is to see Christ's purposes accomplished in their lives. That's your job. How about your workplace? Your task every day is not primarily about the success of your company or getting along well with your coworkers. No, your job is to see Christ honored in how you do your work and how you interact with your coworkers. Seeking after Christ in his gospel gives you a new filter for all of life, and it's this. Does this advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? Right? Every decision gets put through that filter. Should I take this new job? Will it advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? Should I pursue a relationship with this person? Will it advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? Should I move to this new state? Will it advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? How should I spend my retirement? I don't know, but will it advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? Right? That's the way that we should be thinking about life, according to Jesus. Yet, how do we typically make those decisions? Should I take this new job? Yeah, it pays more. Yeah, I've got to commute an extra hour or two, or yeah, I've got to, you know, it's going to cut time away from family and church, but hey, I'll have more money. You know, should I move out of this state? Yeah, I'm sick of liberal California and all these restrictions and guidelines, and I hate living here, so I'm going to move somewhere else. Now, I'm not saying there aren't good reasons to move to a different state, good reasons to take a new job, but the reason has to be, does this advance the cause of Christ and his gospel? 
And may that be the filter for all of 2022 and beyond, right? Every decision that we make, every morning we wake up in the morning, will this advance the cause of Christ and his gospel. And when you live this way, you find life at its fullest. You know, it could be that the frustration, the depression, the anxiety, whatever you're going through right now, it might be because you're thinking about life as your life again, right? Why is my marriage so hard? Why is my job so difficult? Why are my circumstances so bad? Because you're still seeking your life and not Christ's. And if you would give up your life and seek after Christ, you would actually find joy and purpose, though nothing in your circumstances might change. That's what Christ is talking about. If you seek your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, you will find it. And this is Paul's testimony, right? I mean, think about Philippians chapter 3. He did it all. He lived for himself. He accomplished great things for himself, right? Hebrew of Hebrews, you know, a Pharisee of Pharisees. I had it all, all of my life, all of my accomplishments, and I consider it what? Garbage, rubbish. Compared to what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord. It's all nothing, right? If I cling to my life, it's like, and I get everything that I want, which is basically what Paul's saying, it's worth nothing. Knowing Christ is of surpassing value. It's way better than anything else. Paul says, I want to know Christ so much, I would like to suffer like he did. I'd actually like to experience the same kind of death that he did because it would mean I know Christ more. And that is of surpassing value. If you give up your life for Christ, you will not be disappointed. You will never think, boy, I really wish I had my old life back. I really wish I could indulge in sin the way that I did. Or, oh, I wish I had everything that I ever wanted. It's like, no, you'll never experience a day like that. If you lose your life for Christ and his gospel, you will live every day with more joy and purpose than the day before. That is a promise. If you say you see Jesus as he truly is, then live for him, and you will find life the way that it's meant to be. And so the question is, if we say we see Christ as he truly is, does our life reflect it? Now, of course, I know you're in church right now, and I'm sure that you could all give the right answers, right? If I gave you the Sunday school test, how many baskets full? Twelve, okay. How many baskets full the second time? Seven. But it's not about having the right answers alone. It's about seeing Christ as he truly is and having that change your entire life. Does what you say you know about Christ match your life? Now, of course, in one sense, I know the answer to that question will always be no, right? Whether you've been saved for one day or for 50 years, the things you know about Christ are not perfectly reflected in your life. But praise God that Christ can give us clearer and clearer vision every single day so that our lives do reflect that. And we live less and less for ourselves and our goals and our accomplishments and more and more for his sake and the sake of his gospel. He gives a final warning before he ends this conversation in verse 36. It says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? You know, to live for anything other than Christ and his gospel will cost you your eternal soul. I mean, what could possibly be worth that? What accomplishment, what life goal could possibly be worth your eternal soul separated from God? Nothing. And so Christ is calling you, give up your life, your soul for me and my gospel. Not only will you save your life, you'll actually experience life at its fullest and best. And so this year, I hope the more we see of Christ, the more our lives reflect a radical commitment to him and to his gospel. And I hope he's given you a clear vision of him even this morning as we've looked at this text. I hope for 2022, whatever it brings, that for Valley Bible Church, that you will see Christ more and more clearly every single week that you're here, and that you'll bear more and more fruit for his sake and for the sake of his gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful. We're so thankful that you saved us, that you, helped, that you opened our eyes that we saw our sin, that we saw how much we needed Christ, and that you were so gracious to cause us to finally just repent of our sins and bring us to yourself. And Lord, we've experienced this, not to the fullest degree, obviously, but we've experienced that when we lost our life for the sake of Christ and his gospel, we actually found it. That we thought life would be more fulfilling if we lived for ourselves, and we find that it only leads us more and more into sin's slavery and bondage. And yet when we gave up our lives, when we finally said, it's not about me, it has to be about him, we find life at its fullest. We find joy, we find purpose. Lord, we are living in very difficult times as a nation, difficult times even amidst this pandemic, and I'm sure there's difficult circumstances for each member of this church. And yet, Lord, help us to have our eyes on Christ. Because when we have our eyes on him, no matter what we're going through, we find joy and we find purpose and we get to bear wonderful fruit for your sake. Lord, we pray for this year. We pray that it would be the most fruitful year in the history of Valley Bible Church. We pray that it'd be an opportunity where more and more people see Christ as he truly is. And we get to take part in more and more of what you're doing in the world. Lord, we're thankful uh, that we get to serve you and get to be involved in what you're doing, that you call us not only to lose our life, but you call, then you invite us to service. And in that service, we find great joy. And so may this be a wonderful year of good fruit for the sake of Christ and his gospel. In his name we pray, amen.